Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition we'll feature The Vision Revolution, Electricity in the Groove and Extremophiles. But first up, here's Bacteria from Jonathan Coulton. Bacteria. Bacteria. Look, there's bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. And now a blast from the diffusion past. Here's Tim Baines interviewing Professor Rick Cavicchioli from the University of New South Wales about bacteria living in such extremes of heat and radiation that no life should be able to survive except the extremophiles. As introduced by Adam Mark in 2000. You may have heard of the extreme games. Humans who are fearless, reckless, or just plain insane, who take to their skateboards, BMXs, bungee cords, or whatever else, and challenge gravity to a duel. If we were to include all animals in these games, we would surely be shamed by their speed, agility, and stamina. But what if we go down, way down, not just to the insect level, but right to the level of the amoeba? Who wins in the category of the most extreme microorganism? Well, the bravest base-jumping microbes are a group of single-cell organisms known as extremophiles. To find out more about this bunch of extremely small, interesting little creatures, Tim Baines talked to Dr Rick Cavicchioli of the University of New South Wales. Dr Cavicchioli was a finalist in the Eureka Prize and has studied extremophiles for six years. Dr Cavicchioli, what are extremophiles? I guess actually if we start with the term extremophiles, um, it's like most things that which are, which are, uh, relate to human endeavour, uh, it's an anthropocentrically derived definition. So in other words, it's derived from what's normal for humans. So we think about what's, what kinds of conditions we can survive, and hence we relate that to the microorganisms. The thing about the extremophiles in terms of microorganisms is that they can survive extremes far greater than we can. Um, just some kinds of examples are temperatures above the boiling point of water, uh, temperatures which are just about freezing, uh, radiation levels that would have killed us a long time ago, uh, living in the battery, uh, living in the acid of the battery from a car. So very, very extreme conditions. Are these extremophiles rare? Are we likely to meet them on a piece of mouldy bread somewhere? Okay, so some of those environments obviously we wouldn't encounter every day. But some of, the, some of the other extremes are fairly readily available. Um, one kind of example is if you eat salty fish, and you know sometimes you see even like an orange or a yellow colouring to it, that can, that can be because of the growth of um, archaeal organisms, which are in the group which are called halophiles, and that means that they can survive very high levels of salt. So they can even live in salt crystals. You called these archaeal, and these are archaea. Is that a very old group of organisms? The term archaea does denote old and does denote ancient. Um, the archaea 
are a group of organisms which are distinct from bacteria and they're distinct from eukaryotes like you and me and plants. So we believe they have evolved on a very separate tra uh, trajectory. Now one of the things about some of the archaea, for example those that can live at very, very high temperatures, is we believe that these are the kinds of conditions that were around when the Earth started to evolve biological life forms. So in some ways they reflect some of the kinds of conditions that were around then. They can live in those conditions and so we think of them as having ancient properties. These things are basically made of the same stuff as other living things, proteins, water, fats. What's the difference that helps extremophiles survive? What you'll find is that for a particular extreme, you'll have a particular kind of mechanism. Um, and we don't fully understand all of these mechanisms. But I'll give you an example. There's a, an organism that won't even grow unless you have it at least pasteurization temperatures. Like pasteurization is too low for it. So it can grow at very high temperature. It produces some proteins that are extremely stable. You can put them in an autoclave, which is normally used for sterilizing uh, anything, and these proteins just laugh at that temperature. So in other words, they're very, very stable. So there are things that are inherent within the structure of the proteins that just actually help them to um, remain very, very stable. So that's just one example to do with temperature. Uh, the proteins in extremophiles from extreme cold, are they the same uh, adapted proteins as for the the ones in, that survive extreme high temperatures or low nutrient uh, environments, is that right? There's a class of organisms called methanogens and they can grow up to 110 degrees. Now this particular class, which is a uh, kind of organism that produces methane, they also grow in Antarctica. So they grow with a maximum temperature sometimes of only about 15 or 18 degrees. So they have the same, they're the same kind of organism, but if you look at the proteins, the same protein from the methanogen, the one that's growing in Antarctica, the proteins are very, very unstable. So in other words, they have evolved so that the proteins are more flexible, so that they can actually function at a very low temperature. So that's sort of, it's the converse mechanism. High temperature, they become more stable. Low temperature, they become more flexible. Are we talking about these bacteria just surviving, or do they thrive particularly in these environments? Yes, yeah, so in, in, their, um, in their native environment, they can indeed thrive. Um, if we, we take an example from Antarctica again, there's one lake called uh, Deep Lake, and it contains, we've only been able to identify two microorganisms. Now, this is a place where the temperature dips to as low as minus 18 degrees. Uh, most of the year it's below zero. It's very, very salty. And yet there's, a, there's an, a, an archaea, an archaeal microorganism that lives in high salt. And it, well, it dominates in this lake. So it grows slowly, but yes, it does dominate in that kind of an environment. This lake uh, is uh, in Antarctica, is that right? Look, there's a, there's a really interesting region in, uh, in Antarctica, which has lakes. The region which I'm talking about is where the Australian Antarctic Territory is. Um, and this is a region which used to be part of the sea. And when the Antarctic ice mass 
started to warm up about 10,000 years ago, the bottom of the ocean basically rose and it's now the land that we see today. So those dips in the ocean um, are, are the lakes and so there's a whole range of interesting environments. In terms of the lakes, look, there's actually <laughs> there's something that there's, a, there's an area called Lake, Lake Vostok and this is below the Russian station called Vostok and this lake is actually, believe it or not, almost four kilometers below the ice mass and it's a lake as large as Lake Ontario it's 230 kilometers long, 50 kilometers wide and it's been separated from the rest of the planet for at least about uh, four ice ages, it's about 400,000 years we actually expect the average age of the water is about a million years old. Now, uh, talking of uh, water and ice, uh, when water turns to ice, it actually expands, and when it boils, it turns into a gas. If these uh, microorganisms contain, what is it, at least 80% water, how do they avoid the physical problem of being exploded at these extreme temperatures? Um, okay, so if you want to heat water up above 100 degrees then you can't do that at atmospheric pressure you, you're entirely right so where you find these very high temperature environments is deep in the ocean um, and it's at places which are called deep sea hydrothermal vents and the um, yeah, very deep in the ocean at least at least about well, at least a kilometer and a half so you can find them as deep as well, the deepest part of the ocean is, is the Mariana Trench, which is about 11,000 metres. Um, this is a, an environment where you could grab Mount Everest and you could throw it in there and it would cover it up. So it's a very deep environment. So these hydrothermal vents have temperatures up to about 350 degrees Celsius. And um, you can find microorganisms that grow up to about 100 or more degrees there. What's the sort of pressure down in these deep sea trenches as well, I mean, as well as their high temperatures. Yeah, <laughs> it, probably the best analogy is if you were to grab two elephants and get them to stand on a 10 cent piece, that's how much pressure you would be under. That was Dr. Tim Baines on the 12th of December 2000, speaking with Professor Rick Cavicchioli from the University of New South Wales about life in extreme conditions. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SER.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and podcast over the internet on diffusionradio.com. Next up, the extremely talented Derek Muller sings What is Electricity? Electricity is one of our most faithful servants. It gives us light. It cooks and refrigerates our food. These represent few of the innumerable applications of electricity. Electricity at work. But what is electricity? What is electricity? What, what, what is electricity? <coughs>
song about electricity because it powers our lives, makes it possible for us to thrive. Because it powers our lives, makes it possible for us to thrive. A four, five, six volt up potential difference makes electrons go round if the circuit is complete and sound. Circuits closed, voltage there, current flows, power everywhere. We use AC in factories and homes because we can't transform it. High voltage transmits with low loss, but low voltage is That was Derek Muller singing What Is Electricity, a cover of Are You Gonna Be My Girl by Jet. You can see more of Derek on Veritasium.com and on Catalyst on ABC TV. And we'll be putting up the video of that song on the webpage. Last week, I spoke with Mark Changizi about the evolution of colour vision. This week, we look back to my 2010 chat with Daniel Keogh and Aaron Cook about my review of Mark Changizi's book, The Vision Revolution. It's the latest research about the evolution of human vision. So we're not talking just the eyeball or the evolution of vision in vertebrates, but we're talking about the way humans see the world. And he's very cleverly put this in terms of superpowers. So it mentions that, you know, in M. Night Shyamalan's Unbreakable movie, the Bruce Willis character doesn't know that he's got superpowers. He's using them unaware because they're just he takes them for granted until he's forced to know about them. And this is similarly, we have these superpowers, but we don't think of them as superpowers because we use them every day. So he goes through what are our superpowers. And the first one is colour telepathy. Now, he says that our the evolution of colour, the range that we see in, particularly we can see between certain shades of colour very, very tiny differences and other ones not very much. And the reason for this is because our eyes are finely tuned to be able to perceive colour changes in human skin. That, in fact, from the bruising to the paleness of someone who's ill to the blushing of someone who's embarrassed, we're actually evolved to be able to read our fellow humans' skins. So we can see emotions, we can see health... And in fact, this is why most cultures around the world, they don't have a name for the color of skin. To them, it's just skin. Other people's skin from other parts of the world, they're differently colored, but our skin is just neutral. It's plain. It's the base color. And he's got a very good line of argument and evidence, and it's illustrated with these fantastic images that lead you along and explain very clearly how we do this and how it's affected our vision. It then goes into x-ray vision. Did you know that you had x-ray vision? Well, if you're in a forest with lots of leafy, twiggy things around you and you've got binocular vision, your binocular vision, having two eyes to the front of your head, isn't really just for 3D that everyone talks about because it's not the primary thing. If there's something blocking your view, you can always have one eye on the other side and your brain doesn't just show you the view through or just the close-up bit. It shows you both. So you actually see, if you put a book in front of one eye and you look beyond it, you'll see the person in the distance or the thing, the wall or whatever you're looking at sharply, and you have a ghost 
of the close-up theme because that's what your brain does with the images. So this is really useful. You're not ignoring the close-up information in favour of the distant information. You're seeing both in a sort of an overlay ghostly sort of way as if you were seeing right through it. And if you're in the forest trying to escape predators, this is invaluable. Or if you're a predator trying to get little, which is more likely, you find most predators have binocular vision, both eyes at the front, not at the side, mm. then you can, in fact, spot all these, all these little bits of prey, whether they're little animals that are hiding in the undergrowth. They think they're hiding because to them, they can't see past the obstacles. But to you, with your X-ray vision, you can see right through the twigs, right through the branches, right through the grass, and right through the fence, if that's what it is, to the other side, and you can find the prey. So it's really, really useful. If you're in a one-person shooter game and you're not sure why it's not quite working, your gun seems to block things or your mm. machete or whatever, it's because you've got monocular vision. It's not two eyes. You can't see through things like you're used to doing. It's fascinating. Yeah. I'm not really stopped to think about that. I, as a kid, I used to always be fascinated about when you closed one eye, the view would be slightly different to the other. But the idea of being able to see through an object that's that's in the foreground is yeah it's an interesting you've not thought of it as a superpower that's right that's right but it can make all the difference so he goes on to I and mean, i'm really rushing through what's really a, a complex and interesting book to future seeing that we see the future because when you look at the world particularly things that move they're moving fast enough and our brain takes long enough to process the images that by the time we're aware of it, it's already gone. So if something's coming towards you or going away from you or going past you, if you only process where it is at the time that you see it, it's too late for you to actually react and catch it or run away or whatever, or get out of the way, whatever's necessary. So your brain actually models what's likely to happen next. And of course, the best way to model what's going to happen next is to make the future happen by moving it yourself, which we're more than capable of doing, goes through a whole lot of optical illusion. He shows that there's a large class of optical illusions that work by taking advantage of the way our brain anticipates the future. So you get illusions of motion. If you, again, back to the superheroes, they have capes, and the reason for flowing capes is not because it's just cool, but because if you're drawing it in a comic book, it gives the illusion of motion. Same for the little lines that go, are drawn past things going fast in drawings it's all taking advantage of the way our brain has streaks when we anticipate something that's moving so he goes through all these illusions and you can see what's going on and he then predicts what would work and he goes through classes of illusions and basically proves his point so we actually anticipate the future to some degree and you can see the consequences it sounds almost like he's saying that we've got some sort of buffer in our brain like when you're waiting for YouTube to download on a slow internet connection. I wonder if that's got anything to do with how things seem to happen in slow motion when particularly important events happen. Mm. Maybe maybe there's some sort of link between the two of those. Sounds reasonable to me. Yeah, there have been yeah, there's been a bit of study into that, the the kind of life flashing before your eyes or yeah, moments of sheer terror etc taking feeling like they take longer i'm sure it would be that mechanism just doing the reverse trying to you know trying to take every second out of it 
I'm That's sure right. they're going to talk, you know, talk about as the matrix part of the brain. There you go. So the last thing that he looks at is what he calls spirit reading, which is the fact that we can read the minds, the thoughts of people long dead. And if you spoke to someone from a preliterate society and explain which, and read out from a book what someone had written sort of 500 years ago, they would actually be rather shocked. Because you might explain what you're doing, but it won't make a lot of difference to them. Through a lot of human history, literacy was, I mean, literacy is pretty recent. It's only a few thousand years old. And it was the minority who could do this arcane art. And I mean, the ancient Egyptians had being a a form of magic given by the gods and, and so did a whole lot of other cultures. He shows that basically it's writing is culturally evolved to take advantage of the way our visual system sees the world and our brain, our optical centers have evolved to see objects. So where writing is gone, whether it's logographic in the form of one ideogram like Chinese per word, or whether it's made up of letters, which speech writing like you have in English, it's either to be an object itself or for the letters to be parts of objects which match very precisely the way we look at objects to understand them as objects in our world. So if you look at the way any shape in your room is made up of little corners and things, he matches them up to letters, to shapes that are common to all sorts of languages, and even to little icons and drawings. And if you look at children's development, all children start by developing their own sort of picture writing. If you look at the... They have representative drawings. The drawings of little children are usually not meant to be realistic. They're not meant to, even by the children to be realistic. They're meant to tell a story. If usually if you listen to the children, they don't say, that's mummy, that's daddy, that's... A, they tell a story. This is mummy and there's this and then she's doing that and this is happening. And so all the little diagrams that the child has drawn tell a story and they're a very primitive form of writing and he goes on with the cultural evolution of it and how it affects the brain and how it goes to to the way you perceive things and just you know wouldn't it be great if you could actually use all this visual processing that happens so quickly in the brain to do computation and he actually worked out a way to do some logic based on some of these illusions about whether things are going into the page or out of the page and your brain detects whether they're whether the cube is going into the page or out of the page based on what you see around it, the context. And you can follow one of his little logic diagrams that he's got here, and it'll actually do a computation of a one or a zero, but it's a bit of effort. And then he thought about it and thought, well, that's too hard, right? It's nice, but it's too hard. And he went away and thought about it for a year or so, and then he realised that, you know, in a preliterate society, if you wanted to learn an algorithm like a recipe to cook something or to make something... You either had to work it out for yourself and memorize it, or you had to generally be taught by an elder. Someone had to teach you. And that person had to take a lot of time because you had no way of storing it outside of your brain. It all had to be in your head. And you had to take all that time to learn and learn and learn. And that person had to be very patient and have time for you. Whereas now you can hear someone's voice off a page. You can read it as often as you like. And a book is infinitely patient. You can read as many times and it doesn't matter if you don't get it the first time. So, And there's so many more teachers. So 
it's a way for you to get a program, an algorithm, a, a way of doing things, a set of steps that will give you a result like cooking into your head. So we can program our brains with writing. You can read the thoughts. You can write your thoughts down. Yeah. And then true. hundreds of years later, someone else can read them yeah. and know what you said and know what you thought. Whereas before writing, that was impossible yeah. unless you told a story that everybody retold for generations afterwards yep. without changing and or sung a song. Yeah, and, and having those patterns, particularly like, you know, Iliad and all that. Exactly. Homer's, yeah. So Homer's outside probably. of that, um, no immortality mm. for you at all, really. And now there is. Your voice will be heard down the ages. It'll be in a library somewhere online. Visual, yeah. Yeah. It's a visual code of it. Okay. And, of course, um, you can look stuff up. So you can go to a library or, of course, you can just look for a tutorial online in a search engine and you can learn just about any skill you want. It's somebody has put instructions out there for you. You can be as, you know, multi-talented as you wish to be. It's an awesome thing. So I highly recommend The Visual Revolution by Mark Changizi. It's put out by Ben Bella Books. You can find more of Mark Changizi's books at www.changizi.com. That's C-H-A-N-G-I-Z-I. You can also find Mark Changizi on TV, hosting the Discovery Channel's new show, Head Games. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. You can send your contributions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion at 2SER.com. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And you can follow me at Ian Wolf on Twitter. Contributing to the program were Tim Baines, Derek Muller, Aaron Cook, and Daniel Keogh. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SEI in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Ha, ha, ha.